What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that features the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and those, well, that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Julie Hyman filled in this week for Scarlett Fu, who is off. We spoke with Gene Munster, Loop Ventures' managing partner, about Tesla's recent troubles. Gene said he's making the bet that tariffs are not going to be an issue for the electric car maker. I think it's pretty small, and I want to take a step back and think about Econ 101 and comparative advantage here. Take a little bit of a, a segue. I'm going to get to that in a second. Comparative advantage basically is the concept that if you stick to what you're good at and you share, everyone's going to be better off. It's basically the concept of free and open trade. And the reason why I don't think this is a big deal for Tesla is I think at the end of the day, uh, every economist agrees on comparative advantage. They disagree on a lot of things, but everyone agrees on comparative advantage. And I'm going to make the bet that Donald Trump also agrees with comparative advantage. And the reason why that's an important perspective when you think about what the impact of Tesla is, is that if he does believe in that, ultimately, uh, instead of going through the painful details of what is being proposed by both countries here, ultimately, this is probably just going to be negotiated. And I think ultimately, the, the tariffs will be reduced. And so I'm making the bet that this is not going to be a problem for Tesla. Let's just quickly take the other side of the equation and assume I'm wrong. And that, in fact, that these tariffs do kick in. And uh, what does that mean for Tesla? It's negative, And it creates a significant headwind for 17% of Tesla's business, which is the China market. Surprisingly, the second biggest market for China, even though they don't have Tesla stores and a way to maintain them, it's a big market for them. And if those tariffs kick in right now, uh, people who purchase Teslas in China pay a 25% tariff. It sounds like that would be an additional 25% tariff. So that would be a 50% increase in the cost of a Tesla in China, which obviously would not be good for demand. Yeah, and Elon himself has been one of the most open about tweeting about the prospect of trying to level the playing field here as far as access and operating in China is concerned. Gene, bring it back to the story, the ultimate story for Tesla and, and the output numbers that we saw this week. Of course, we saw that ramp up where the Model 3 is concerned and the forecast that we got from them. Do you think all the headlines that we see around Tesla at this moment are just a, a distraction ultimately from the bigger story? I know you've been quoted as saying you're still a believer. Definitely a believer, and this is going to have some bumps in the road. The way we think about this is think of an analog clock. It has an hour, uh, a minute, and a second hand. 
And when we think about the news day to day and the terrible week that Tesla had last week, that's really focusing on the second hand. And I think it largely misses the bigger point. And the bigger point, a bigger point, is the minute hand, in this case, the Model 3 production. Uh, true, they missed for the third time in a row the targets that they had out there. They did 2,000, exiting the quarter at 2,000 per week, and the target was 2,500. But what gets missed in that uh, conversation about the disappointment is that they doubled the output of the Model 3 in one quarter. Yes. And they'll probably will double it again next quarter. And so I'm a believer because I think ultimately that they will get the Model 3 production squared away and that this is going to be a transformative moment, not only in EV, but in autonomy. But if we're using the clock analogy, while time is ticking away here, doesn't that give their competitors more of a chance to gain on them? Probably not. And the reason is that the problems that Tesla is solving around EV, Tesla is the largest EV manufacturer in the world in terms of cars. The, uh, from a competitive standpoint, all the issues that have slowed down either production of Model 3 or the recall with some of the steering, the battery uh, challenges initially when they're doing the Gigafactory, all those are some similar challenges that other automotive makers are going to have. And so, yes, the clock is ticking, but unfortunately for other automakers, they're going to have to go through the same difficult manufacturing uh, that Tesla's going through. And so I think that that is when the true metal of these other uh, cars companies, when it goes beyond press releases and model announcements, and when it gets to producing these electric vehicles and these batteries at scale, that's where I think you're going to start to see that this is a much more difficult thing that Tesla has gone through, and other players will have difficulties too. Gene, are you concerned about capital market access and the difficulty that's just going to pose in core operations? I'm, I'm not, and part of the reason is their mission statement seems to resonate with a handful of very steady, large investment hands. And the mission statement is to accelerate the globe's adoption of renewable energy. It's not about making a great car. If they're successful at doing that, and that's everything from energy capture with the solar panels to storage and the batteries and usage in the car, if they're successful at doing that, I think that they will be able to garner investor support. Uh, not to mention the whole autonomy piece, which is something that Tesla is going to uh, eventually play a role in. And so, in other words, it's such a big opportunity that Tesla is going after. I think they will get investor support. We also spoke with Brian Belsky, BMO Capital Markets Chief Investment Strategist, on the recent market volatility. He said U.S. stock fundamentals remain strong. I think people are losing kind of some perspective here. We've had three distinctly different months so far this year, if you really mm. think about it, right? Because January, momentum, go, go, go. I'm missing the market. After a 21% move in the S&P last month, mm. or last year, I'm sorry, January comes, we got to buy stocks. February comes, the exact opposite happens, momentum selling. And then March, you had a combination of not only people worried about higher interest rates, but then later in March, you started talking about recessions and inverted yield curves and things like that. Today's first day of the, of the second quarter. What does this mean? I mean, on a near-term basis, people are taking profits. On today's, what we're seeing in terms of volume, it's not great. So we're not necessarily seeing a bunch of selling, although what's really telling on a very near-term basis, if you watch the market the last couple of hours of yeah. the day, that's when it really starts to get worse. Yeah. Yes. And so, again, people have been on vacation. It's Passover. I mean, it's there's a lot of things going on. So the true test of the market, we believe, from a fundamental perspective, will really be seen and said when we start to see first quarter earnings. What do you make, Julia brought it up, of the fact that we're not seeing much of a 
flight to the traditional safeties. Ten-year yields down modestly, but barely kind of reminiscent of what we saw in early February where that wasn't working at all as a balance. It's a really important point to talk to your to your viewers because that means you're not seeing wholehearted selling and moving into the defensive areas. Now yes. remember, in March we saw uh, the defense of the true yield areas like utilities, telecom, and REITs outperform, but yeah. that's not the true trend. I mean, you think about it, uh, those areas have dramatically outperformed for several, several years where the next true fundamental trend in our markets are that we're going to see higher interest rates. Those Yield proxies can't possibly outperform. So that's clearly more of a near-term trading kind of momentum play. At the core of this, though, and obviously we've got a lot going on, whether it's the concerns about a trade war, we asked the question about earnings season. We've also got the, the pressure that we've seen on the tech sector yeah. in particular, too, and that's only continued in the session today. How important is what's been one of the fundamental underpinnings of, of the stock market getting increasing pressure in light of the fact that it's been a crowded trade? Well, again, it's a really great point that it's a fundamental underpinning. Yeah. So from a fundamental perspective, our work shows that technology in the S&P 500 over the last 10 years has slowly and consistently become the most consistent earner in the market, period. So we, we call you know the Apple machine, the Google machine, the Facebook machine, the Microsoft machine. These are consumer staples types name, names, mm. okay? But more importantly, you know, we were neutral the last few months principally because uh, the, the, the sector became more than 25% of the market. Yeah. That's always a problem, number one. Number two, was up 34% last year. We're going to see some sort of a pullback in that sector, okay? And number three, um, chip, uh, stocks like the chips that were up 100% last yeah. year, were, they went down more than the market in February, but then when the market recovered, they were up more than the market. So that was clearly more of a momentum move. So are we just getting distracted by all these discrete tech stories? Yes. Facebook's data, <laughs> Trump's tweets on yes. Amazon, all this stuff, and it's just as simple as you put it. These were hot stocks. They had to come back down. Yeah, what, what comes up must go down. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. I mean, let's continue to throw out all those types yeah. of phrases. But <laughs> at the end of the day, markets are about fundamentals, period. And the fundamentals condition in the United States stock market remains very strong. Earnings in this whole period of March, April, I'm sorry, February, March, with all this volatility, earnings went up for not only 2018, but 2019. So companies are the true wherewithal. Let's stick to the fundamentals. This is kind of quote-unquote silliness. It's never great when stocks go down because people lose money, but this is all part of the stock market. We've had more 1% moves in both directions so far in 2018 than yes. we saw all of 2017. <laughs> so are you saying then that actually what solidifies this market is earnings season? As we yes. start to chug out these numbers, actually everyone will go, okay, now we need just to calm down and perhaps look at opportunities that have been provided by the pullback that we've yep. seen. Take a deep breath. You yeah. want to be in those areas that are going to continue to do well in this type of environment. Financials, industrials, materials. And now we're starting to see enough weakness in the tech sector that you might want to say, hmm... Maybe it's time to start thinking about bottom fishing some of these technology stocks. Even well, at this point? Even at this point. Or you think? Looking. Well, I mean, you know, hold I can never want to time the market, I know, right? Tough. That's very difficult. But you want to see this kind of come back into you, especially the, the, the companies I would say that are the more the consumer staple-ish, cash flow generators, strong balance sheets, and consistent earnings names. So those big ones, you called them the machines. Nothing's changed with them in terms Nothing of fun. They got a little bit out of whack because as a sector, it got way too big for the market. The run-up, in your view, kind of crazy. 
but fundamentally, they're the same businesses. You're not worried at all about that. No, and in fact, fundamentally, they maybe become stronger. I think people sometimes get ena become enamored with momentum and price performance. Go, uh, go, go. But they miss the fact that stocks like Cisco, Apple, Microsoft, they're paying, and more importantly, they're increasing dividends. And we think equity income is a major secular trend. We think equity dividend growth, okay, is a 10-year move in the U.S. market. Well, how come? Well, first of all, uh, investors simplify their equity income needs by looking at utilities and telecom, where we have proven through our work that those companies that pay their dividend, increase their dividend over time, and have cash flow yields above the dividend yield are able to get increase the dividend over time. They're really a total return proposal and a growth proposal. So a lot of those companies are clearly financials now, but technology, industrial, some healthcare. Talk to me about the flattening of the yield curve and how focused we need to be on this, particularly when you're talking about financials, because we have seen the front end of the curve pretty well anchored in light of expectations for what we get from the Fed right now. But we've seen that sort of continued softening of the 10-year yield. Yeah, we've, we've written a lot about this, and, and we need to see a prolonged inversion of the yield curve, a prolonged inversion over several weeks, if not months, before we say, okay, now we need to worry about this. The market actually can see and withstand a flattening the yield curve and the markets can actually do quite well under that environment. I think, again, that's what people are missing, where all, all of a sudden I think the market is already discounting we're going to invert the yield curve when we're heading into a recession. Well, we recess from higher levels of GDP. We're not going to recess from these levels of GDP. So I think that can lessen the fears a little bit. And Dean Baker, co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, joined along with Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent Michael McKee to discuss John Williams, who's the new leader of the New York Fed, and to analyze whether he'll be a dove or a hawk. Fed does have an issue, which I think is widely recognized. It's been dominated by white males, particularly those from the financial sector. And the Fed is supposed to be representative of the country um, and responsive to a much broader group than just the financial industry. And we did have, of course, Janet Yellen's the first uh, female Fed chair, which was a great breakthrough. But then she's replaced with a joke about was the first former female Fed chair replaced by another white male. Um, so there's certainly hope in getting greater diversity, but more than the, the gender of the race, it's diverse interest. And uh, John Williams, I, he's been a career Fed person. It would have been nice to have someone from another background. Michael McKee, on that uh, list of things of why he's kind of a controversial pick, uh, his lack of financial markets experience, and while in some Fed positions, maybe it's just about monetary policy, the New York Fed uh, chief is also has a significant regulatory role for all the banks there. How big of a challenge do you think that's going to be for him? Well, it's two different questions, and you're not quite right about the regulatory aspect of it. But in terms of financial market experience, obviously important because the New York Fed puts monetary policy into operation right. by intervening in the markets every day. So you need to know something about it. Now, Williams has been on the front lines within the FOMC for the last seven years as they've discussed all of the things that have to be done. And so he does have some knowledge about all this, at least at a 50,000-foot level. He also uh, is a, a, somebody who can understand what they're talking about. They have Simon Potter still there, who is the vi executive vice president in charge of all that. And then the New York Fed has a history of people who did not have market experience. Jerry Corrigan uh, came in. Uh, Tim Geithner came in. So that probably isn't going to have a huge effect. The regulatory thing is a little bit unfair because uh, he's been dinged because of Wells Fargo's mis misfeasance, and he was the head of the 
San Francisco Fed during much of that period. But San Francisco Fed doesn't regulate them. They only regulate the international units of mm. the bank. And they don't regulate a lot of the Wall Street banks, except for, in some cases, some small parts of it. For large part, it's the Office of the Controller of the Currency who is responsible, or the FDIC. So there's, a little, there's obviously regulatory and cultural issues right. that have to be thought of, but it's not as if he is the man who's got to crack down on the banks. Um, Dean, when we talk about the process and looking at uh, Williams' job experience here, is there any sort of recourse or is there any sort of looking at changing the process at this point? Because the New York Fed president, nominated by committees of local board members, approved by the Federal Reserve Board in D.C., there's not a lot of external input here that's from outside of the Fed system, it seems. No, and this has been an ongoing issue, particularly with the New York Fed, but one could ask about all the bank presidents, because this is a structure that was established over 100 years ago. We could argue whether or not it made sense in 1913, but it really is an anachronism today. So if you look at other central banks, the European Central Bank, the, the UK Central Bank, they're per purely public institutions. You don't have this mixed public-private. And what I mean by that, just to be really clear, the 12 bank presidents, those are eventually, essentially answerable to the banks in the district. It's more complicated than that, and you do have the final vote come from the governors, but it's very largely a process controlled by the banks in the district. And there's a very good argument, to my view at least, that at least the New York Fed Bank, because of the importance of the president, that that should be a pick that's appointed by the president or the governors approved by Congress. In other words, done through the democratic process, democratically elected officials, and arguably all the 12 bank presidents. Again, you may want to restructure it so you don't have 12 banks, whatever. This is something that was designed over 100 years ago. But we're really out of line with the rest of the world in having this mixed public-private rather than an entirely public central bank. Mike, come in here. Well, there are people who would argue that is a feature, not a bug of the system, because uh, the New York Fed, well, any of the Fed bank presidents are not chosen by the banks in the district. The law was rewritten in 2010 so that bankers have no say in who's hired. It's the Class B and Class C directors, especially well, the, well, the Class, class C directors who, who, who are uh, the Class C directors who are, represent the public. And in this case, the head of the search committee at the New York Fed is the head of the freelancers union, a labor representative. So uh, the, the, we could have a whole debate, Dean, I'm sure a lot of people would debate this for hours over whether having quasi-private institutions as part of this is a bad thing. Do you want everything subject to politics? Uh, th that's an interesting question. Well, just to be clear, the Class B directors are appointed by the Class A directors who are appointed by the banks. So, so that's... Uh, so to say that the banks don't have a role in this is not quite right. And in fact, in the case of the New York Fed, when the Class B directors were up in each case, there was literally only one candidate. So, so there was not. Th this is not a democratic process. I love and, this a bit of debate. Uh, but Dean, please, we're running out of time, and I want to talk about policy. I want to talk about whether or not adding him to the mix here. And I know we'll come back to this debate, Dean, and we'll get you back on to talk about it. But. Um, is he going to be a halt? Because he has voted against Janet Yellen in this interest rate cycle to hike rates. No, he has he, not. Actually. Has he not? No, he's never dissented. Okay. He is, uh, he he is a down-the-middle down centrist. Okay. Uh, he has swung back and forth between hawkish proclivities and uh, dovish proclivities. Right now, you put him probably directly in the middle. He's favoring free rate increases this year. His work on the neutral rate suggests that uh, he thinks that they may be getting close yes. to what they need to do. Uh, and he 
he's been in these debates now for seven years. So you're not really changing the character of the debater who's contributing. He gets a vote full time, but that's really the only difference. Dean, what's your assessment of him on a strictly monetary policy standpoint? <laughs> well, uh, as I said, he, he has voted with the consensus in every single vote, at least as far as I know. I'm not sure if there's one way back where he dissented. But it's important to keep in mind, dissents are rare. So right. it's not necessarily the case that that means that he would do the same thing when he's in a leadership position. So the basic story is you have the three leadership positions, of course, the Fed chair, the New York bank president, and the vice chair. And as one of those three leaders, he may well be presenting a different view than when he was essentially following the leader, Janet Yellen. That's it for what you missed this week. Thanks for listening. And a reminder to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts and to tune in every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter to watch what you miss. Have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.